Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week it's a conversation about diet and cancer with Natalie Smith. Natalie is a certified specialist in oncology nutrition through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Natalie, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. I am currently the oncology dietitian within the Smilo Integrated Medicine Program, as well as the Smilo Survivorship Clinic at Yale New Haven. I originally got into oncology nutrition, you know, from the love that I found uh, during my senior year at UConn um, in the dietetic internship program. Um, We were asked to pick a specialty rotation. Um, I chose oncology. And from there, you know, it was just amazing. The the family patient buy-in, the connections, you know, with those patients that's created, um, the multidisciplinary approach with the team, um, all of those things kind of sucked me in. So um, I've been an oncology dietitian for the last nine years and uh, really enjoy the field. Fantastic. So let's dive in. I mean, I think that this is such a hot topic and one that um, is really interesting to a lot of people. One of the questions that I think we as providers frequently get asked is, what did I do to cause this cancer? Um, You know, did I eat too much sugar? Did I eat too much fat? And the corollary of that, of course, is um, how can, what can I do now in terms of reducing my risk of getting this cancer back? So can you kind of address that? Yeah. And I, you know, it's such a common question that I get on a daily basis, probably from patients. Um, And it's important to note that nutrition is so important throughout the entire cancer journey and recommendations, you know, about nutrition are so different depending on where you're at in that journey. So, you know, there's patients coming in that are newly diagnosed asking, okay, well, how, how can I improve my diet? How can I improve the outcomes um, and improve my tolerance of treatment? Um, and then there's also patients, you know, in the midst of treatment trying to manage side effects. And then post-treatment, their patients are trying to, you know, better manage their diabetes, reduce their weight to reduce risk of recurrence. So there's so many different angles of nutrition throughout the journey. Um, And, you know, I always try to see the person as a whole, right? So ideally we want plant-based diets, um, which, which is great for heart health and, and weight management and, you know, all these great things for, you know, oncology risk. Um, but it's also important to pay attention to that whole, that whole picture. And, you know, when people are starting treatment or going through active treatment, a lot of it is symptom management, um, making sure they're well-nourished, um, you know, they're well fed, they're, they're not losing um, a significant amount of weight during treatment, and they're able to tolerate the treatment that's best designed for the best outcomes for them. Um, so it's very individualized, um, you know, depending on how well they're, tr- they're tolerating the treatment um, can kind of dictate how, how varied the diet can be, you know, um, and those recommendations definitely change patient to patient. So let's let's take that journey. Um, so before patients even get into the journey of uh, cancer treatment, um, 
you know, we're, we're all very aware that, you know, the two main killers of people in North America and probably in the world are, are heart disease um, and cardiovascular uh, effects and cancer. So one of the questions that people often ask is, is there a diet that I should be eating or vice versa, a diet that I should not be eating in order to reduce my chances of getting cancer. So many people have heard about stories that cancers are fed by sugar. So should we avoid sugar at all costs or should we avoid fats at all costs? You mentioned a plant-based diet. So should we avoid animal products at all costs? Uh, what kind of diet do you recommend to people who either may be genetically predisposed or even just regular people who just want to minimize their chances of getting cancer? Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, and as we know, the rate of obesity and overweight has drastically increased among both adults and children um, in the U.S. And we know that being overweight or obese is linked with a higher risk of developing over 10 different types of cancer. You know, that includes uh, thyroid, postmenopausal breast cancer, pancreatic, gallbladder, just to name a few. Um, so by eating a healthy diet and incorporating exercise and reaching a healthy body weight, we can absolutely reduce our risk of developing many of these cancers. And the diet that I typically recommend and most oncology dietitians are recommending is a Mediterranean style diet. So it's a diet rich in plant-based proteins like beans and lentils and tofu. Um, it's a diet rich in whole grains. So swapping out your refined white bread products with the whole grain alternative. It's eating a diet with a lot of variety of fruits and vegetables um, and choosing low-fat, fat-free dairy products um, to reduce our intake of saturated fat and extra, um, and extra calories um, that those come with. Um, so the Mediterranean diet is, is a, a, you know, it's research-based, it's supported. Um, and on the other end of that, there are key things that we do recommend people minimize or reduce in their diet that we know are linked with certain cancer diagnoses. Those include alcohol consumption, um, processed meats that are cured or smoked or have nitrate additives. Um, some examples of those include sausage or hot dogs, ham, deli meats, bacon, um, red meats, and then sugary beverages. So those four things are kind of the key um, food sources that we recommend people limit in order to improve their their risk of um, or reduce their risk of developing certain oncology diagnoses um, and also chronic illness. Um, so the processed meats and the red meats are linked with an increased risk of colorectal cancer. Um, the sugar sweetened beverages like, you know, Gatorades and juices and, you know, sugary coffee drinks, those increase our risk of becoming overweight or obese, which is linked to those, um, those cancer diagnoses I previously mentioned. Um, and then alcohol is a big risk factor and there's really no recommended safe amount, um, you know, the, the AICR, um, the American Institute for Cancer Research does recommend women consume less than one alcoholic beverage a day and men consume less than two. But we do know that any alcohol consumption is going to increase risk. So the more alcohol consumed, the higher the risk. So 
you know, there, there are things, you know, that we know added into the diet, you know, it can be very helpful to reduce our risk fruits and vegetables that are antioxidant risk, um, rich whole grain fruits and, you know, whole grain products, all those things can be helpful, but also being very mindful of these processed meats, um, alcohol consumption and sugary beverages is key. Perfect. I mean, that's so great because it really empowers people to know that there are things that you can do to reduce your risk, which is always something that I think people who are diagnosed with cancer sometimes feel somewhat powerless. Um, but there, there are things that you can do to reduce your risk. Once you are diagnosed, you, you had alluded to the fact that oftentimes your diet may need to be tweaked um, in order to help you to sustain your nutrition, um, particularly when there may be side effects or treatment modalities that may affect um, how you get that nutrition. So thinking about head and neck cancers, esophageal cancers, can you talk a little bit about how you as an oncology dietitian kind of think about how to tweak diets uh, for patients who are going through cancer treatment? Absolutely. So, you know, depending on the treatment plan that's designed for a patient, um, those come with their expected and likely side effects and symptoms. So, for example, a head and neck patient, you know, who may undergo surgery, um, radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, um, you know, any combination of those those treatment plans do come with expected side effects. So, for example, when a head and neck patient is going through radiation treatment, it's a very targeted treatment. And the side effects that occur with radiation to the head and neck area include mouth sores, taste changes, um, you know, reduced appetite. Um, so all of these things, in, you know, come with typically cause weight loss, you know, malnutrition, um, muscle loss. So as a dietitian, we step in and we say, okay, you've lost, you know, some weight. We need to find ways to incorporate more calories and protein, maybe in a liquid form or a soft food form because of the difficulty to swallow, because of the difficulty to chew, um, because pain or discomfort with mouth sores, um, we may reduce, you know, um, acidity in the diet, you know, tomatoes and citrus fruits would also irritate the lining of the mouth or the throat. So that's one example of how a dietitian would come in and tweak the diet to ensure that they're getting the basic nutrients they require um, to remain strong and tolerate and be able to receive the treatment that's designed for them. Um, another example would be um, you know, a breast cancer patient going through chemotherapy. Um, we know that many of those drugs can cause, you know, reduced appetite or, you know, loss of energy, um, maybe some nausea. So some things we would suggest for the nausea would be small frequent meals and snacks, um, choosing foods with minimal odor or short cooking times like oatmeal, toast, you know, peanut butter crackers, things like that. And trying to limit the fat in the diet because fat can e increase nausea. It takes a little longer to empty from the stomach, so it can increase those nauseous, you know, those nausea symptoms. Um, so those are just some examples of how you know we could step in and and tailor that diet to improve you know their nutrition status at all costs. Yeah. The other the other thing that I find a lot of breast cancer patients um, mention is that 
their treatment, unlike the head and neck cancer patient or the pancreatic cancer patient, as opposed to leading to weight loss, actually leads to weight gain. And many of these patients really lament the fact that, you know, breast cancer we know is one of the cancers that is associated with obesity. And here their cancer is leading to weight gain. How do you deal with that? And how do you kind of help patients who are going through treatment or may have just completed their treatment kind of reduce their weight so that they can get back to that ideal body weight that will reduce their risk of recurrence? Yeah. So, you know, it definitely comes up a lot in conversation. And surprisingly, a lot of oncology patients who are treated for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, their main concern is that weight gain that they may experience during treatment. Um, So, you know, typically, as long as the patient is tolerating the treatment well, not experiencing excessive nausea, diarrhea, um, the goal is weight maintenance during active treatment. Um, because we know that with weight loss, there's an increased risk of hospitalization and dehydration and, you know, poor outcomes. So, you know, it is with breast cancer, there's other supportive drugs that are used um, to better manage side effects, right? So they may be taking steroids prior to their treatment. Um, They may be on like a hormone blocker to reduce their, you know, their risk of the cancer recurring. So there, there is that piece. And I think what we try to do is, is meet that person where they're at, improve the diet wherever we can. Maybe that's reducing added sugar consumption, um, you know, from sugary beverages. Maybe that's just increasing their intake of plant-based proteins or adding a fruit or and or vegetable to each meal. Um, maybe it's increasing water consumption. So we see what their goals are and we try to set them up, you know, to have the best outcomes. And then once that treatment is completed, then we can kind of go into that survivorship mode completely and really push that Mediterranean style diet and not be so worried about those, those um, you know, other side effects and symptoms they may be experiencing on active treatment. Yeah, such great advice. We do need to take a quick break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about the connections between healthy eating and cancer with my guest, Natalie Smith. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their survivorship clinic is a resource for cancer survivors and provides patients and their families with information on cancer prevention, wellness, supportive services, and health research. SmiloCancerHospital.org. Over 230,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year, and in Connecticut alone, there will be over 2,700 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Each day, patients with lung cancer are surviving thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they have ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the BATTLE II trial at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Natalie Smith. 
We're discussing the connection between healthy eating and cancer. And right before the break, we were talking about the fact that there's so many connections between diet and cancer that really permeate the whole cancer journey from prevention of cancers to begin with, to going through treatment, which can have side effects that really affect how you can eat and what you can eat, to the whole concept of weight gain and weight loss and how we really need to get back into survivorship mode um, in dealing with these things. And so, Natalie, right before the break, you had mentioned that when you get into that survivorship mode and many patients are trying to get back to their ideal body weight, you really recommend this Mediterranean diet, right? Um, lots of fruits and vegetables, legumes, beans, lentils, um, you know, whole grains. One of the questions that I think a lot of patients ask is, is there anything else? Um, should I be taking supplements? Um, what about um, some of the integrative um, medicine things that they may have heard about? What about cleanses? What about vitamins? What about gooseberry extract or whatever the, the latest craze is? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, I absolutely get these questions, you know, through the integrated medicine team, but also within survivorship. So it's a question that's on many patients' mind is, you know, what else can I do? What more than diet can I do to improve my, you know, my outcome and reduce my chance of recurrence and, and all of those factors? And, you know, the big thing that we have to remember is that supplements, you know, should be treated as medications. Um, and it's important to, to first do no harm. That's, I, that's the first goal, um, with supplement, with taking supplements is we want to make sure that the supplements that people choose to take are not interacting with their, their cancer medications or interacting with their cholesterol lowering medications and not interacting with their blood pressure medications, right? So we want to make sure that first we're doing no harm with those supplements, Ideally, from a nutrition standpoint, dietitians try to get it from food first. Um, what we do is we look through their diet recall. We ask them what they're eating at each meal and snack. We ask them which choices they're making, what they're drinking. And from there, we try to really optimize their nutrition status with food first. If there are um, deficiencies, you know, if they have low iron levels, if they are anemic, we can use food first with increasing our intake of iron-rich foods, incorporating vitamin C-rich foods with those to increase absorption. There's so many things we can do to maximize that nutrition status. If the deficiency remains, then supplements are recommended. The risk with supplements, you know, turkey tail mushroom and turmeric is that there's limited, um, you know, control over um, what's in these products or, you know, who's overseeing those products. So that's, that's the unknown area. And it's also knowing where you're getting these supplements from and who's monitoring them. So it's important to really check with your, your healthcare team before you start supplements to make sure that one, you're doing no harm. And, and two, these medications are, you know, coming from a good place. So um, typically, I recommend patients ensure that their their supplements are USP certified, meaning it's you know reviewed by uh, um, a third party um, to make sure that what is on that label is accurately listed. Um, so we really push food first, um, but 
also we understand that patients really want to try other things to improve their outcomes. Yeah, I I think a lot of patients, you know, they 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 hear the message of food first, but then they will go and they will research things that say that they are made from all greens, right? So so things like the um the the mushrooms that you were mentioning or um you know uh various um quote natural concoctions um are those safe and and how do you know um because they're marketed as being all natural you know plant based um that kind of thing but they're not food that you normally think of as food that you get at the grocery store, although many of these supplements you can find at the grocery store too. Right. So there's a couple things. So when you eat a a piece of, when you eat a whole food um, and that food contains antioxidants and vitamin C and all these great things that we want, and then you look at the alternative, which is taking a supplement, right? The dosage in the supplement is so much higher than the dose from the food. We know that there's, you know, you can't do harm by eating a, a whole food, right? Because the amount of antioxidant, the amount of vitamin C, it is safe. We know that. When we put it and we condense it and we, you know, dehydrate it, and you know, it's such a high dosage, it's such a um, large amount of that nutrient, that antioxidant, that vitamin. We no longer really understand the safety. Because, you know, you can overdo any one thing. And when you do too much, sometimes it's actually a negative. It can actually cause harm, right? So we know that, you know, specific supplements like omega-3s, right? Um, You know, it's fish oil. It's a great thing for heart health. But there's also an upper limit to fish oil, right? If we exceed three or four grams a day, you know, it can also increase our risk of bleeding and lengthen the time it takes to clot. So there are these, there's this other side to supplements that many people don't realize that too much can be a negative thing, right? So that's why we lead with the food because there's, there's no safety risk. When we start adding these high doses of supplements, we really have to pay attention to, okay, how much are we actually taking in and what's that potential risk versus benefit? Um, and I think that that's key is understanding that, you know, we just don't know enough about these supplements yet. We there's just so there's such such limited research supporting their use. So when it comes to oncology, the safe thing is to say, you know, avoid this until we know more. Um, specifically with vitamins, you know, when people are on radiation treatment, we recommend patients, or I recommend, and most radiation oncologists recommend patients avoid vitamin C supplements and you know all these antioxidant supplements because we don't know how those interact or potentially reduce the eff- efficiency of radiation. You know, when we think about foods, many people may say, should I be eating all organic? I mean, because I don't really know whether, you know, my food has been, quote, contaminated with, um, you know, chemicals or uh, fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Is that something that you recommend for patients that everything that they eat should be organic? From an unrealistic standpoint, if 
everybody could afford all the organic produce and only buy a local and only purchase from the local farm. Yes, right. That would be an ideal lifestyle where we eliminate any potential, you know, food additives or um, processing agents, any of those things. But reality is that groceries are so expensive. People are struggling to pay bills, right? So we have to look at realistic recommendations for when it comes to nutrition. If you know, a patient is struggling to pay for things, you know, the last thing I'm going to recommend is they choose all organic produce and organic poultry and all of those things, because it's just not a realistic ask. But if somebody can just get more fruits or just get more vegetables in, whether that's frozen or fresh or even canned sometimes, that's where those goals change. Um, the expectations and the goals are different for each patient, depending on social factors, um, you know, whether they live alone, whether they can actually open the vegetables. You know, I have patients who are elderly and they struggle to even open bags or cans. So those recommendations change. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's so individualized. Um, but ideally, yes, we would love organic produce and, you know, organic products. I usually look at the clean 15 dirty dozen list that's updated every year. And that provides a list of foods that have the highest pesticide content, um, on those fruits or vegetables each year. So if people are looking to make a better choice or looking to reduce their, their intake of pesticides and, um, any of this contamination, they can access those lists and, and maybe, make a decision on their own, you know, what yeah. they're willing to do and what they're willing to change. Yeah, it's a good place to start. If you can't get organic everything, maybe you can just make those small changes based on those lists. You know, another question that I think often comes up, you had mentioned before the break, um, some of the lifestyle changes that you recommend include sometimes increasing your water. With regards to water, a lot of patients ask, should I be drinking filtered water? Should I be drinking alkaline water? Um, what is your advice with regards to that? Yes. Yeah, so when it comes to alkaline water, your body has a set point, right? It has a set pH level that it wants to maintain. That's homeostasis. So there's no point in doing alkaline water because once you ingest something, it hits the stomach and that acid, that pH level is, is regulated, right? That the stomach is an acidic environment. So it, it's really honestly a waste of, of money for patients and people in general to be consuming alkaline water. Um, your kidneys and your lungs work very hard to regulate the pH um, within your body. And it, it just adds more work on the system with trying to change that pH. So um, I understand a lot of patients try to do that, um, but I, that is something I generally recommend people stay away from um, and just drink regular, you know, filtered water, seltzer water that has no added, you know, sodium or sugars. Um, you know, unsweetened tea um, is is a good choice. Um, you know, milk products are you know great choice. Low fat, fat free milk. Um, so that's kind of the what I typically recommend for fluid intake. What about you've mentioned a few times now avoiding the sugary beverages, but some people have a sweet tooth. So, what is your opinion with regards to artificial sweeteners? So the artificial sweetener topic is is very hot lately, or not even lately, but um, I have that conversation a lot with patients. And generally, I recommend patients do the real thing and just really 
limit the quantities. So with sugar alcohols and, and sweeteners, there's a place and time for it. And with diabetics, you know, who are trying to reduce their blood sugars and better manage their diabetes or, you know, lose a little bit of weight, there's, a, there's definitely a place for, for those sugar-free products. For someone who doesn't have diabetes, what I typically recommend is they choose the real thing, whether that's, you know, regular soda, regular juice, and just limit the quantity. Um, the, the primary source of added sugars in the American diet is sugar sweetened beverages. And that's across from adults and children. And that's in, you know, again, all the fancy, you know, coffee drinks that we get at, at different restaurants and, and local coffee shops. And that's, you know, sports drinks. And um, even kombucha can have up to, you know, 25, 30 grams of added sugar in just one can. So, you know, the general recommendation for added sugar consumption is less than 25 grams for females for a day and less than 35 for men for the day, which is equivalent to like one eight ounce can of soda. So obviously we try to tell people reduce and avoid those things as much as possible. But I typically recommend because there's, again, limited research on sugar alcohols and sugar free um, products. So just to be on the safe side, I recommend doing the real thing cutting it out, or just consuming in moderation. Natalie Smith is a certified specialist in oncology nutrition. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.